Well, good evening, Hallows Church. It's good to see you this evening. My name is Jeff, and I serve as one of the pastors here with the Hallows Church. Let me uh, apologize in in advance for my voice. It seems to be fading fast. I am uh, uh, struggling with a a cold since Thursday, uh, and so it's been a a long day, but uh, I'm sure God will get me through this. He will be gracious, and uh, so I just bear with me in that regard. I do promise Andrew has not skipped town permanently. He'll be back next week, and we'll kind of resume our... Uh, normal teaching rhythms at that time, but uh, it's been my privilege to uh, be with you in this way and opening our Bibles together, and we're going to do that tonight to Luke chapter 15, verses 1 to 16, the passage you heard read just a couple of moments ago. Now, we've been journeying through this sermon series called Drawing Near as we are kind of stepping back and looking at God from different perspectives and different angles and studying his uh, attributes, and today we'll be looking at Uh, the pursuit of God. Now, you may say that's not really an attribute of God, and you would be correct in a technical sense. And so uh, what's going on is uh, we are uh, also looking not only at kind of who God is and what he's like, we're going to also look at what he does, some of his actions in addition to his attributes. And so that's what we're going to be doing tonight is looking at really the relentless pursuit of God uh, for his people. And as you also know, as we've been talking about, we've had artists within our faith family each week contributing or creating a piece of art that ties in with the attribute or the action of God that's under study that week. And so uh, they kind of think about that theme, they meditate on that theme and the passage that we're studying, and they uh, are inspired to create or contribute a particular piece of art uh, for, for that week. And this week, uh, the, the piece is over here, it's, it was uh, contributed by Lily Hunter, and we uh, thank her for that. <clears throat> There's a description that was provided I'd like to read for you that ties in with that. And it says this. It says, the pursuit of God is mighty, fierce, and filled with the greatest compassion we could experience. God will not settle for letting his children wander. Sometimes his relentless pursuit is like a lion's roar, fear-inducing and mighty. And other times it is gentle, soft, and tender. However, we might experience it it is always compassionate. So thank you again, Lily, for uh, partnering with us in that way and contributing that for this uh, uh, sermon series. <clears throat> All right, well, let's get going then. Uh, when, when I was a young man, when I was a young adult, like many of you, I'm, sh- I'm sure, I had, uh, I had certain dreams. I, I thought I knew what I wanted to do. I thought I knew who I wanted to be, and I, I went out and I kind of got after it. I pursued college degrees, I established myself in a good career, I was, I was raising my family, it was, it was exciting, it was an adventure, there were challenges along the way to be sure, but, but things were going very well in my life for me for a long stretch there. I had achieved and acquired and experienced really what I thought I wanted and needed and what I thought would really make me fulfilled and happy in my life. But as the years rolled on, I grew more and more unsettled on the inside, and I began asking myself more and more frequently, is this this really it? Because it feels like there should be more. This really can't be all there is, can it? And so I began asking some bigger questions. You know, what's the point? What's my purpose here if there is one at all? But rather than begin looking for answers to those questions in Uh, productive ways. Instead, I began chasing after life in some pretty dark and desperate and destructive ways. 
And by the time I hit my early 40s, I was not in a good place at all. I found myself caught up and consumed, really, and controlled in every way by many addictions and many indiscretions. My life was slowly being taken over by by a certain darkness. And while I was an active participant in it, I I was at the same time in some ways blinded by it and blinded to it. And I was slowly losing my grip on everything that was supposed to mean anything to me. My marriage was coming undone. My family was coming undone. My career, in many ways, was also coming undone. My life was in every way spiraling downward, and yet somehow I continued to convince myself that I was exactly where I wanted to be, doing exactly what I wanted to do. But then on March 6th, 2012, everything changed for me. On that day, I found myself lying flat on my back on my kitchen floor with nobody around. I was unable to move. I was unable to speak. There were drugs all over the kitchen counter, pornography on the computer. And there I lay helplessly thinking to myself, so this is how it's going to end for me. And I've never sensed the presence of evil like I did that day. In hindsight, I had opened the door and invited that evil into my life without even knowing it. I was very much living in cooperation with an enemy who I did not at the time even know existed. And it felt as if that evil, that enemy, was was why I could not move. As I laid there on my back, it felt as if that evil was pinning me down and squeezing the life out of me quite literally beginning in my chest and moving into my throat. It felt like I was being choked harder and harder until everything, everything just slowly faded to black. I'm not sure how long I laid there unconscious that day on that floor, but at some point my eyes opened. I still could not move, but, but at least I could see. At least I'm alive, I remember thinking. And in that moment, a word came off my lips without me even really thinking about it. A word came off my lips, and that word was a name. And that name was, was Jesus. And when I spoke his name, it was as if that which had been penning me to the floor and choking the life out of me was no longer running the show. Quite the opposite, in fact. That evil that had felt so tangible and so present, it was... Uh, displaced and replaced, really, by something, something more beautiful than I have ever experienced and ever could imagine experiencing. I was flooded by an overwhelming sense of love and forgiveness and mercy and joy. And for some time after this happened, I thought that what I had done was I had called out to Jesus, I had cried out to him, and he He showed up just in time for me. He responded to my call. But over time, what he has made clear to me is that that he was not responding to my call in that moment. Rather, I was responding to his. He put his name on my lips that day, I believe, to tell me who had come for me. And when I stood up that day, I was shell-shocked in every way. But do you know what I wanted to do immediately? 
I wanted to read the Bible. I wanted to learn more about Jesus. And that's what I did. I had read the Bible some before. I was familiar with some parts of it. But as I, as I read the Bible this time, its pages were coming alive. I couldn't get enough of it as I came across passage after passage that, that told me what was happening on the inside of me. And there was much happening on the inside of me. God's love had been poured into my heart by the Holy Spirit who was given to me. Romans chapter 5, verse 5. I was a new creation in Christ. The old had passed away and the new had come. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. I had been rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of Christ. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. <clears throat> Fast forward six months and I was beginning seminary. Six months after that, I was leaving my secular career to give all of my attention to Jesus. A year after that, I was beginning an internship at the Hallows Church. And here I am today, a pastor, proclaiming the beauty and the power of this Jesus who I encounter to anyone who will listen. Friends, I tell you these things not in any way to say look at me, but to, to say look at him. I am still blown away by what, he, uh, what has happened and what is still happening. In the darkness and in the depths of my own depravity and in my own self-destruction, he was, he was coming after me. He was coming after me all along. He was chasing me down and he was pursuing me in spite of me. I was running in one direction. I was running hard. I had chosen to ruin my life and he was choosing instead to, to redeem it because that's what he does. Our God is a God who searches and seeks and pursues and overtakes lost sinners in their sin. And over the course of that first year after this happened, God used what was happening to me to pursue and to draw in many, many from my family to himself. Many people think of Christianity as a set of beliefs that you take up, right? Here's a set of beliefs, a set of ethical guidelines, and you decide perhaps this is what I want to do, this is who I want to be. The Bible, though, describes Christianity in very different terms, almost opposite terms. The Bible says that Christianity is not so much something that you choose. It's not something you take up. Rather, it's something that takes you up. It's not something you seize. Rather, it's something that seizes you. It comes at you and it comes after you. Now, don't get me wrong. You do make a choice. You do make a decision. But according to the Bible, it's always in response to him coming after you first. Throughout the pages of the Bible, we encounter a God who is a seeking God, a, a searching God, a wooing and pursuing God. And this passage today is going to show us God's relentless pursuit of those who are lost, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son, and the joyous celebration in the heavens when that which is lost has been found. But think about this with me. If you're, if you're being pursued by someone, if someone is trying to chase you down, you can, you can do one of three things, really. First, you can run faster, trying to create more separation between yourself and your uh, pursuer. Another thing you can do is you can find somewhere to hide. You can take cover and go into hiding and hope that you will not be found or noticed by your pursuer. Or third, you can, you can slow down. You can give up the chase. 
and allow yourself to be caught. Most people take the first route. You run, you run from God, you rebel against God by, by deciding really that you will be your own God. You'll probably never say it that way or even see it that way, but that's essentially what it is when you decide that your life is yours and yours alone. You decide what's right and what's wrong for yourself. It's your life after all. It's nobody else's. But through the telling of this story, Jesus has something to say to those who are trying to run, to those who are trying to hide from him. Think with me about the sheep in this passage, the one who ran off in this story, the lost sheep. Now, when you and I hear Jesus referring to himself as the shepherd and to us as the sheep, it can make us feel kind of warm and fuzzy. We think of fluffy little lambs and green pastures and still waters. But you need to know that when the Bible calls Jesus the great shepherd and when it calls us his sheep, it's a, it's a very important and very intentional and also a very well-meaning insult A sheep, you see, is truly one of the most helpless animals there is. When they run off like this one in the story and they lose their way, they have no real sense of direction. They have no bearings apart from the shepherd and the flock. And so they run and they wander aimlessly. They become quite vulnerable to attack. In fact, if you let most any animal loose, whether it's a chicken or a cat or a horse or whatever, they they all will usually do one of two things. The first thing they may do is they may be very happy to be wild again. They may kick off their shoes and go running barefoot through the grass, singing, born free. Or on the other hand, they may want to go home and they may find their way home. They either go wild or they go home. But sheep, they don't do either. You see, a lost sheep is a dead sheep unless and until it is found by its shepherd. And when a shepherd does find a lost sheep, his job is not over, far from it, in fact. And the reason for that is because a lost sheep does not happily follow the shepherd back home when they show up to rescue them. In a book by Doug McMillan called The Lord Our Shepherd, he says that, he says, when you try to recover a lost sheep and they see you, they often panic, they run to and fro, and they get very flustered. And quite often, he says, what you actually have to do is you have to seize them, you have to tackle them to the ground, you have to bind their legs, and you have to pick that animal up and put it on your shoulders, and you have to carry it all the way back home. In verse 5 of this passage, in fact, it says that when the lost sheep was found, the shepherd did that very thing, joyfully putting it on his shoulders and carrying it back home. But before he could do that, he probably had to tackle it to the ground first, because that's how you have to deal with lost sheep sometime. That's the way, in fact, many lost sheep get found. And what this means for you and I is that you and I as fallen human beings were utterly lost in sin and can do nothing at all to find ourselves, to find our way back home apart from our shepherd coming to get us. In fact, the entire recovery operation for the lost sheep and for the lost coin too in this passage is based 100% on the initiative being taken by the one doing the seeking. Neither the lost sheep nor the lost coin could have done a single thing on their own to change their lostness, and neither can we. In the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6, it says, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. We all have turned to our own ways. We've all gone astray, but God nevertheless says in Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 11 and to 12, he says, I will seek my people anyways. 
He says, for this is what the Lord God says. See, I myself will search for my flock and look for them. As a shepherd looks for his sheep on the day he is among the scattered flock, so I will look for my flock. I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on, the, on a day of clouds and total darkness. God says, I will search for my, for my flock. I will rescue my people. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, we're told that the reason Jesus came was was to seek and to save those who are lost. Our God is a searching God, a seeking God, a, a wooing and pursuing God, and you see that coming out in the Bible in a variety of ways. You see it from the very beginning, really, in Genesis chapter three. Adam and Eve, they did the one thing God told them not to do, and they knew it, and because they knew it, they ran and hid. But in verse 9, we find God nevertheless seeking them out, calling out to them, where are you? And then in verse 21, we see that he covers them. He covered them and he clothed them in spite of them and in spite of what they had done. God is always the gracious pursuer, the gracious initiator of any relationship with him. You see it all across the Bible. You see it with Abraham and with Noah. You see it with Moses. You see it with Jesus and the disciples. In John chapter 15, verse 16, Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. In John chapter six, verse 44, Jesus says, no one, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. And that word draws is a pretty strong Greek word. In fact, it gives a sense not just of some sort of subtle drawing, but of a very active dragging or even a pulling by force, because quite frankly, that's what it takes for some of us. But the point is, he pursues us, he chooses us, and he chooses us before we choose him. And even as we were beginning to choose him and turn to him, and even if it may have felt like it was us doing the choosing and the turning, he tells us, he says it was actually me. He says, I was pulling you, I was drawing you, I was overcoming your resistance. One of the beautiful truths of the Bible is that it's always been God reaching out to man, not man reaching out to God. Our reaching back is just a response to him coming after us first. And so following Jesus is in many ways nothing other than being drawn by him and in response, allowing him to uh, draw us in, allowing ourselves in a sense to be caught not just once, but again and again by the one who is pursuing us. Our God is a seeking God, a searching God, a wooing and pursuing God. It sounds very mysterious. In fact, it sounds somewhat romantic. There's a romance to it. Christianity is something that comes after you, it comes upon you, and it overtakes you out of love. But how does this happen in our lives? It sounds quite mysterious, so how does this actually happen? There's a remarkable statement in Luke chapter 24, verse 45, where the risen Jesus had returned. He had appeared in physical form, and he was teaching his disciples. And it says, says there that then Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He opened their minds. And that word opened, it's a very interesting one. There were a couple of different Greek words, actually, that Luke could have chosen there when he was writing this sentence to get across the idea that Jesus opened their minds. 
one word, anoigo, means to open something like a door, something that already has a latch and a hinge and that sort of thing. But the other word, dia noigo, has the prefix dia on it, which means through. So the word dia noigo doesn't simply mean to open, it means to open through, or to break through, or to bust open. It means to break open or to bust through. You wouldn't use the word dia noigo to talk about opening a door unless that door was locked and you were going to break down that door. Rather, you would use the word dia noigo to refer to something like a mountain or a wall of rock being broken through in order to create a tunnel through it. And that's exactly what the word, that's exactly the word that Luke uses in that verse and that I think tells us uh, something important. You see, Luke refuses to talk about the human mind or the human soul like a, like a door where you simply give it a little nudge and it opens up and you kind of take in the things of God. No, he talks about the human mind and the human soul like a, a slab of stone, impenetrable until something breaks in and breaks through in order to make a way. And do you know what Jesus said just a couple of verses later in verse 49 of Luke chapter 24? He said, I'm sending you power from on high. He's talking about the Holy Spirit and that power, that word power, the power of the Holy Spirit is the Greek word dunamis, from which we get our English word dynamite. And so do you see what's being said here? Jesus is saying, and And Luke is saying that our minds and our souls are like impenetrable barriers when it comes to the things of God until the Holy Spirit does something about it. This is how our God pursues us. The Holy Spirit is the dynamite that breaks through and busts open the barriers and the blindness that that have been caused by sin. And the same verse tells us why the disciples' minds needed to be opened in this way. It says so that they could understand what the scriptures said. And that word understand, get this, another interesting word choice by Luke. What it means is to bring all the pieces together. It actually means literally literally to, to, to bring the pieces of a puzzle together, to assemble a puzzle, to solve a puzzle. If I lay 20 pieces of a puzzle out on a table and you look at those pieces, you see one thing. But then if I assemble the puzzle, if I put all the pieces of the puzzle together and then you look at it, you see something quite different. But it's the same 20 pieces. The content hasn't changed. The actual content is identical. But once those pieces are assembled properly, you have a new perspective entirely. You don't really even see the individual pieces anymore. Instead, what you have is you have an entirely new appreciation of that content. Think about this, the disciples, they had the scriptures, they had the Old Testament, and they could read and understand at some level, at an intellectual level, what they were reading. But we're told still that Jesus had to open their minds. He needed to break through so that they could see and appreciate things on a deeper level, on a spiritual level that they could not get after on their own. And the Bible makes quite clear that this is This is precisely what the Holy Spirit does for you and I as Christians. Let's look at a couple of passages that talk about this. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, it says, We have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who comes from God. Why? So that we may understand what has been freely given to us by God. 
John chapter 14, verse 26 says, but the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you. When the Spirit, uh, sorry, John chapter 16, verse 13 says that when, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. He will glorify me because he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. So the Holy Spirit, like, like dynamite, breaks through. He opens our eyes and our hearts. He begins putting the pieces together for us, giving us a new perspective, allowing us to see a bigger picture and a bigger reality that we could not otherwise see on our own. It's mysterious, it's fascinating, but this is how our God comes after us. It's how he woos us and pursues us and gives us eyes to see the beauty of Jesus and the beauty of the gospel. And this breaking through can happen in all sorts of ways. Most often, God's pursuit of us happens somewhat subtly, as, as it did with the woman named Lydia in Acts chapter 16. With her, we're told that we're told the Lord simply opened her heart so that she could understand the things that Paul was saying to her about Jesus. But other times, God breaks through in a person's life quite explosively, as with Paul in Acts chapter 9, where, where Jesus knocked him off his horse and blinded him and then radically transformed Paul's life quite literally overnight. Paul hated Christians. He hated Jesus. He was persecuting and killing Christians but then after this encounter with Jesus, it says, it says immediately he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogue, saying this is the son of God. Sometimes God's pursuit is subtle, sometimes it's spectacular, but in every case it's, it's supernatural. He's coming after you. And his pursuit of you, it is ongoing. It is not a one-time thing. He comes after you initially and he makes you a Christian, but then he keeps coming after you again and again in order to challenge you and in order to, to change you, in order to grow you as a Christian. And we need that, don't we? Because we wander, we stray, we often lose our bearings. But he is a very patient and persistent pursuer and a very present tense pursuer too. I hope you sense him coming after you at different times and in different ways. The Bible says you should. I hope you sense him coming after you at times to console you or to comfort you. But I also hope you sense him as well coming after you at times and kind of grabbing you by the collar and arguing with you a bit, helping you to see things in a new way. And so are you letting him do that? He will come after different areas of your life different areas of your heart, different areas of your character. And it may get rough at times, like with the sheep. It may feel at times like you're being taken down and roughed up, but at times that's, that's what it may take for the shepherd to get your attention and to carry you back home. And so how is he pursuing you today? And what are you doing about it? Are you trying to create separation between you and your pursuer by perhaps running faster? Or maybe you're trying to hide from him behind your good works and your morality, hoping he won't notice what's really going on in your heart. 
Or are you slowing down and allowing him to catch you and to do with you what he wants to do in your life? All right, we've talked a bit about the lost sheep and the lost coin. Let's talk about the lost son for a few minutes. But before we do, it's very important to remind ourselves who Jesus was telling this parable to and why. The reason Jesus told these three stories back to back to back was in response to something very specific. You see the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees and the scribes, they were complaining. They were muttering in verse two, saying, this man, this Jesus, he welcomes and eats with sinners. You see, they were appalled that that Jesus would welcome and associate with the types of people who, in their minds, God would never welcome and God would never associate with. And it is in response to that accusation in verse 2 that Jesus tells these three stories in rapid succession. And as he does, he's going to be saying to the Pharisees and the scribes, he's going to be saying, let me make it very clear to you what I've come for and, and who I've come for. Now remember, the first parable, verses three to seven, it's the parable of the lost sheep. A man is tending a hundred sheep, he loses one, he goes out seeking and searching for that lost sheep, and when he finds him, he puts it on his shoulders, carries it home, and and what does he do when he gets home? He calls his friends and he calls his neighbors, he says, come and rejoice, let's celebrate, because the one who was lost has been found. The second parable, verses eight to 10, was the parable of the lost son. A woman has 10 silver coins but loses one, so she searches diligently. She sweeps her house until she finds it, and when she finds it, what does she do? She calls all her friends and neighbors to come and to rejoice and to celebrate with her because she found the one that was lost. And then we get to the third parable, the parable of the lost son. This father has two sons, but he loses one to reckless an irresponsible living in a far-off land. The similarities between these three parables are hard to miss. Something is lost in each one of them, right? The sheep, the coin, and the son. And in each parable, the one who loses something finds it, and when they find it, there is much rejoicing and celebration. But there's one very striking difference that can be seen in the third story in comparison to the first two. In the story of the lost son, did you notice that nobody, nobody goes out in pursuit of the lost son? Nobody goes out searching or seeking him out. We get to the third story, and by that time, after reading about the lost sheep and the lost coin, we kind of expect someone to be going out in search of the lost younger brother too. And so Jesus, he seems to be inviting the question, why? Why did nobody go out searching for the lost son like they did for the lost sheep and the lost coin? And I'm going to propose an answer to that question in a few minutes, but before I do, let's talk briefly about what goes down in this part of the story. You are probably familiar with it. And what I want you to see is the way that Jesus is really going to go after the Pharisees here. He's going to go after The Pharisees and anyone else for that matter who believes they're standing before God is based on on what they do and the rules that they keep. In this parable, we saw that the younger brother, he hit bottom pretty hard as we read down to verse 16 earlier. This guy, he had taken his share of the father's inheritance before his father had even died and he 
took off and he left and he squandered it away in reckless and irresponsible living. But after hitting bottom, the younger son, we're told, he kind of came to himself. He, he came to his senses and he, he felt drawn back to the father's house. And I think perhaps he may have felt drawn back to his father's house and his, his father himself because of, because of the, kind, uh, the father's kind and patient pursuit of him over the course of his life. And so this younger son, he makes his way back home. And then we're told in verse 20 that the father saw his son far off in the distance. You see, the father was always scanning the horizon, watching and waiting for his lost son. And when he saw him, we're told the father doesn't sit back and wait on the porch. No, this father, he, he takes off running toward his son. He hugs him. He kisses him. He lavishes him with affection. This father doesn't say, how dare you show up here. He doesn't say, you're going to pay for what you've done and the embarrassment you've, you've brought upon this family. No, in verse 22, he says, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. He says, we're going to throw a, throw a party and it's going to be big. The father throws his younger son a massive party. Why? He tells us in verse 24, because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now is found. Just as with the lost sheep and the lost coin, the lost son is found and there is a great celebration. There is much rejoicing. But there was another member of this family who was not in the mood for celebration that day. There's an older brother in this story too, isn't there? You see the older brother, he shows up in verses 25 to 28. He had, he had been out working hard on the father's estate like he often did. And it says that as he got near home, he, he heard music and he heard dancing. Now, I don't know how you hear dancing, but if that's the case, this must have been quite a party. And this older son was beside himself because of what was happening and what he was seeing. He did not seem happy at all that his younger brother was alive and safe. He did not seem happy at all that his father got his son back. He was not rejoicing or celebrating at all. No, he was livid. He was angry. In verse 29, he says to his father, look, he says, look, you, I've, I've served you these many years and you're throwing him a party? Look at him, look at what he's done. He doesn't even deserve to be a part of this family. What the older brother was really saying to the father was, I've followed all your rules. I've served you these many years. I deserve better than this. And we're told in verse 28 that the older brother, he refused to join the celebration. He refused to step in to the biggest party the father had ever thrown. And get this, what does the father do about this older son's behavior, his bitterness? He doesn't say stop complaining, stop pouting. He doesn't come down hard on him as, as many might. No, he goes out to him. He pursues him. He goes to him and says in verse 31, son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours, but we have to celebrate and rejoice. Your brother was lost and he's been found. And what then does Jesus say next in this story? What happens with this family situation as the parable concludes? Well, we actually don't know. And this is perhaps the most unexpected twist of all. This is kind of the punchline of the parable. 
It's precisely at this point that Jesus ends the story. Jesus leaves us hanging here with no, no real resolution to this family situation. And so we don't know what happened with the older brother. As far as we know, the son who followed all the father's rules never actually joined the, the father's celebration. Now, the listeners would have been shocked at this. This younger son, the reckless and rebellious son who squandered the father's wealth and uh, his property is saved and celebrated by this father and the son who followed all the father's rules is apparently lost. The tax collectors and sinners who were listening, listening in surely must have been thinking, maybe there's hope even for us if God is really a father like that. And the Pharisees and the scribes must have been thinking, this is ludicrous. We know what God is like, and he's, not, he's certainly not like that. Jesus is really shifting the paradigm here in some ways to the telling of this story. And one of the things he's going to be doing is, is he's going to be redefining for us in some way what it means to be lost. As we compare and contrast these two brothers here, which I believe we're supposed to do, we find that Jesus is showing us in these two brothers that, that sin and rebellion can take different forms. The rebellion of the younger brother, is, uh, the younger son is blatant. He goes from parties and prostitutes to poverty and pigs. This guy lost control of his life. This guy crashed and burned in dramatic fashion. Now that's sin, right? It's hard to miss. But we need to see here as well that the older son was lost too. Jesus ended the story quite abruptly, in fact, and I think he did so quite intentionally because he has something to say to the Pharisees, to, to the older brother types in that crowd and in every crowd. You see, Jesus is saying that some people rebel by being bad, but others rebel by being good. Younger brother types rebel with things like reckless and irresponsible living. But older brother types rebel too. They just do it with things like rules and religion. The younger brother tried to control the father's things by taking his share of the father's things, leaving the country and calling his own shots. The elder brother was no different than the younger brother, though, in wanting the father's things and not the father. He was just going about it differently. He tried to control the father's things by staying at home and keeping all the rules. And after all his hard work and obedience, he had certain, certain expectations. He, he felt that his father owed him certain things. And you hear that coming out clearly when things didn't go his way, right? He was quite abrasive to his father. The older brother obeyed and served the father, not because he cared about the father, but because he cared about what he could get from his father. Both sons, in fact, used the father to get what they really wanted, and they, they didn't want the father. Both sons thought they had figured out the right way to live. Both thought they had find, found the way uh, to reach happiness. One of them did it by being bad, and one of them did it by being good. But Jesus, he says, you're both wrong. He says, you're both lost, but he says, nevertheless, I've come for both of you. I've come for all of you, but repentance is required, he says. 
Jesus is saying to the Pharisees and every other elder brother type, be careful now, you're lost too. You're just as much in need of grace as the sinners that you're looking down upon and despising. He says there is much joy and celebration in heaven over one sinner who repents, but there is neither joy nor celebration in heaven over self-righteous people like yourselves who think they have nothing to repent of. Jesus is looking the religious Pharisees in the eyes and he's saying, your hearts are far from God. You need to repent too. Maybe not of the bad things you're doing, but most definitely for the misguided reasons that you're doing the good things that you do. Friends, Jesus seems to be saying here quite clearly that you and I can be just as lost following the rules as we can uh, in breaking them. And what this means for us is that our sin includes not only doing bad things, but doing good things for the wrong reasons and and thinking that God owes us a nice and comfortable life because of the rules that we follow and the things that we do. All right, back to the question I posed a moment ago. Someone, I remember, went out searching for the lost sheep. Someone went out searching for the lost coin, but nobody went out searching for the lost son. And why is that? Who should have gone out in pursuit of the wayward son. Some commentators suggest that the older brother should have done that. He should have stepped up and looked out for his younger brother. He should have cared about his father and his family and gone out in pursuit of his lost brother. But he didn't because he didn't think his brother even deserved to be part of the family any longer. He didn't think his brother deserved his father's love either. You see, by putting a flawed elder brother in this parable in the way that he did, some say Jesus is inviting the reader to long for and yearn for a true and better older brother who would have done the right thing, who would have gone out seeking and searching for the lost brother, and who would have done so even at great expense and cost to himself. That's the kind of older brother that's missing from this story but that's not the kind of older brother that's missing from our story, right? From the, from the Christian story, because that's exactly what we have in Jesus, who indeed on several occasions refers to you and I as his brothers and sisters in God's family. And our perfect elder brother, Jesus, he didn't just travel across the country to pursue us in our lostness. No, he traveled across the cosmos to, to come after us We have a searching God, a seeking God, a wooing and pursuing God, and he he stepped down into human history on a rescue mission to seek us out and to take us down and to carry us home, to restore us into the Father's arms and to invite us into the greatest party ever thrown. And our access into that party, into the Father's celebration, while it is free to us by grace through faith, Someone had to pay, and someone did. Jesus, our perfect elder brother, he paid the price in full, willingly on the cross, so that you and I, lost as we were, could be found. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your pursuit of us, your patient and persistent pursuit of us. Thank you for coming after us first, for opening our minds, for drawing us in, for wooing us and pursuing us. 
God, would we not try to run from you by breaking the rules? Would we not try to hide from you by keeping the rules? But would we slow down and allow ourselves to be caught by you more and more as you continue to pursue us and as you continue to work in different areas of our lives? Holy Spirit, would you break through now? Would you enliven the truths that we've explored today in ways that only you can? And would you change us by them? In Jesus' name, amen.